Welcome back to Whose Law Is It Anyway, an American Bar Foundation podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing the United States Supreme Court and the pursuit of civil rights. What is the Supreme Court's purpose? How has it evolved over time? And is the court an effective tool for moving civil rights forward? First, a little background. Established by Article 3 of the United States Constitution, the Supreme Court began to take shape with the passage of the Judiciary Act of 1789, which specified that the court would be made up of six justices who would serve on the court until they died or retired. Congress altered the number of Supreme Court seats multiple times before settling on its current standard, nine justices, in 1869. As the court changed in size and scope, its decisions played a key role in defining America's ever-evolving views surrounding the civil rights of its people. To get a better handle on these huge subjects, which I truly know nothing about, I'll speak with two experts. First, I'll talk to Christopher Schmidt, ABF research professor who is also professor of law and co-director of the Law Institute on the Supreme Court of the United States at Chicago-Kent College of Law. He is the author of two books, the Sit-Ins, Protest and Legal Change in the Civil Rights Era, published in 2018, and Civil Rights in America, A History, which was published this year. It's the first book to trace the evolution of the term civil rights in America from the Civil War through today. As if that wasn't enough to be impressive, he is currently working on a new book project, A History of the U.S. Supreme Court and its Relationship with the American People Over the Last Century. Make sure to stay tuned after my interview with Chris when I'll speak with Paul Smith, ABF Life Fellow and Professor from Practice at Georgetown Law. Now, let's talk about the Supreme Court. We're going to talk today about a few of your research projects. You've been affiliated with the ABF for a long time, but you're actually one of our newest research professors. So what led you to the ABF uh, and what is your research background? Yeah, so I have been with the ABF for maybe 12 years now. So when I first came to Chicago, I didn't yet have a job. And my first working position in Chicago was as a visiting scholar at the American Bar Foundation. So I had that position at the time when I got a tenure track appointment teaching law at Chicago Kent College of Law, and I was able to hold on to that visiting scholarship. So I've had an affiliation with the ABF going back over a decade. But eventually during my time with the ABF, I went from a visiting scholar and then I moved into a faculty fellow position. And then I had that for several years. And then most recently I've moved into the research professor position. So I'm finishing my second year as a research professor right now. Would it be safe to say that the ABF has Chris Schmidt's stamp of approval? <laughs> I love the ABF. I constantly find opportunities to talk about how wonderful ABF. In fact, it is interesting when you talk to people who are less familiar with the ABF and you try to describe the place to them, they often look at you and say, I didn't know a place like that existed. How do yeah. I get a position at the ABF? It is really <laughs> such a wonderful position. I love teaching at my law school and I love teaching classes, but being able to have the ABF as a joint appointment for me has just been absolutely ideal. So it, it's helped define my whole scholarly career. And it's a position that many of my friends around the country are deeply envious of. <laughs> Envy is always a good thing amongst friends. So in recent years, you've written two books which touch upon civil rights, which is you know something I want to talk to you about today. And I guess first, my question is, how have we or do we 
and by we, I guess I mean you for us, for the people that don't, uh, define civil rights? Yeah, it's a great question. It's one that on the surface seems kind of straightforward and self-evident. I mean, you pick up any newspaper, you have a conversation with a friend, and you're talking about the state of the world, what's going on in the country. You very well could use the term civil rights in a way that is perfectly intelligible, and then you move on and you you know talk about something else. It's just a very sort of straightforward term. But, and this is what the book's really about, if you actually dive into the term, there's some really interesting underlying complexities in terms of what we mean when we use the term civil rights today. And then the book's a historical inquiry into the question, um, and it looks at how past generations have used the term. And one of the key takeaways of the book is that past generations have used this term in very different ways than we use it today. And it's really had significant changes over the 150 plus years that I look at. So for the book, just so everyone knows, Civil Rights in America, A History, which was published in December 2020. Again, that's for our listeners, because I'm sure you know when your book was published. But what inspired you to write about civil rights as a historical account? And what are some of the, you mentioned how it sort of changed the way that people use the term or invoke the term. What are some ways in which it has changed over time? Yeah, so my path to writing this book, it sort of emerged over time, and it really emerged from a number of different projects I was working on. So the first time the term itself really sort of popped into my consciousness as something that was interesting and question-raising, right? Because all good research projects have a question, a puzzle at the heart of them. So the first time I was really puzzled about civil rights came when I was a graduate student, and I was doing research in the Harry Truman archives in Independence, Missouri. And I came across some papers which involved a committee that President Truman had created in 1946-1947, which was titled the President's Committee on Civil Rights. And, you know, it's a famous committee. It's something that pops up in lots of history books. For most people, it's obvious that he named it the President's Committee on Civil Rights because it had to do primarily with questions of racial justice, racial equality, right? So we were attaching a term that seemed quite you know, that's the usage that's most common today. Talk about racial discrimination being a core civil rights issue. But the thing that I found when I was doing this research is that the advisors who are creating this committee struggled with what to name it. And they ultimately decided that civil rights would be a good label for this committee, in large part because they thought civil rights didn't mean a heck of a lot. One uh, advisor said it was a slightly fresh term. It didn't come with baggage. And in some ways, one of the reasons I like civil rights is because at the time, it was a term that wasn't immediately associated with racial justice issues because the Truman Commission, being like many commissions, was trying to be a bit vague in terms of what exactly they were looking into. And looking into racial justice issues in 1946 and 47 was very politically challenging, particularly if you're a Democrat like Truman was and half his party was quite adamantly defending segregation. So it was this term that was used because it didn't really have a clear connotation with it. So this is the first time it sort of popped up on my radar that the term civil rights kind of has an interesting backstory. And it's one that even though I was at the time consider myself a historian of civil rights in some ways, it was really unfamiliar to me and interesting how people were using this. And then if I just sort of chart my scholarly career from that point on, there's these different moments where I bumped into the term in these different contexts that again, just sort of brought this term to life in interesting ways. So I went to law school after I finished my PhD in American Studies. And at law school, I worked as an editor on something called the Harvard Civil Rights Civil Liberties Law Review. All right, again, something that people look at, they generally know what we cover. And I was really curious about why they named it the Civil Rights Civil Liberties Law Review, assuming that mm -hmm. the terms civil rights and civil liberties are different. So I started doing what historians do. I looked into the history behind this journal, which was first published in 1966. 
And there's this really interesting story about how there's a group at Harvard Law School called Student Group for Civil Rights. There's another group, Student Group for Civil Liberties, and they were doing their own thing. And then eventually in the mid-60s, they decided that they wanted to work together because their work is overlapping so much. And again, these terms, these categories sort of had their identity, and then the identity sort of blended together in these really interesting ways. Let me just do one last anecdote to sort of another data point. This connects to the first book I published. The book I published before my history of civil rights was a history of the student sit-in movement in 1960. So working with the students who led this movement in the winter, spring of 1960, I was trying to recapture a lot of the ways in which they saw the world, because there's an incredibly exciting moment in racial justice activism when these students were sort of going out on their own, trying to sort of define for themselves how they were going to try and change the world and looking at the terms and language that they use. And they sometimes did use the term civil rights, but it was really interesting because these students use the term civil rights oftentimes to distinguish civil rights from what they were doing, right? So this iconic moment in the civil rights movement, this iconic moment in civil rights history, which is the student sit-in movement, was actually led by students, many of whom said what we were doing is not civil rights work. And the reason they said this is because civil rights work was what the lawyers were doing, it's what the adults were doing, and that's exactly what they didn't want to do. They wanted to try something different. So they say there's a civil rights approach and then there's our approach, differentiating their own activism from civil rights. So again, I just sort of kept bumping into the term in these really interesting ways, ways that didn't quite fit sort of our easy assumption that civil rights has always meant something to do with racial justice. And the civil rights movement, of course, was named the civil rights movement because it was a racial justice movement. There's a lot of really interesting strands feeding into this. And this just at some point when I had the time to focus on it made me think, I just want to dive into this question, this really sort of focused question about what these two words, civil rights, meant across American history, and then try to tell a narrative story beginning in the 19th century and carrying through today about how this term has been contested, how different generations have used this term in different ways, and how we got to where we are today, which we have this term, which is very powerful, but also somewhat confusing and contested in its own ways, even today. I have two quick questions and then sort of one wrap-up question about this segment. You mentioned civil liberties sort of in opposition to civil rights, or like those were two options or two labels that were titled. Did civil liberties have like a different definition at that point when they were talking about it? Yeah, it's such a fascinating story because civil rights and civil liberties were terms that were largely used interchangeably for much of American history. Through a lot of the 19th century and certainly into the 20th century, the terms bounced back and forth, like the American Civil Liberties Union, which is probably the group most connected with the term civil liberties. At one point in their history, they were described themselves as a civil rights group, right? So there's a lot of overlap, particularly in the first half of the 20th century. But then you get to this moment, and I can sort of look at this pretty precisely, in the mid to late 1940s, where people started to argue that there's a distinction between civil rights and civil liberties. And the distinction kind of maps on to roughly, I think, what we think of the distinction is still today, which is civil rights as a term became increasingly connected with questions of discrimination, particularly racial discrimination, but also other forms of discrimination, religious discrimination being a, a major one that was uh, an issue at the time. And civil liberties became primarily connected with claimed rights against government authority, right? Free speech being first and foremost, but criminal justice issues as well, due process protections. And there was a moment in the late 40s where people were really trying to push this distinction. And you can actually trace people's interest in this distinction as partly connected to the fact that this was a moment in which you had the Cold War going on. You had a strong anti-communist movement. And there are some people out there who wanted to distinguish the cause of racial equality from the cause of defending suspected communists, right? And the idea being is that you could say, I'm for civil rights, 
But when it comes to civil liberties, we need to be careful because we actually have national security threats. There's this whole group, which are historians have called Cold War liberals. And Cold War wow. liberals generally were supporting, for the time, more progressive racial justice issues, but they were more qualified in their idea about protecting leftists, economic leftists. And part of this is sort of a division between challenging the economic system versus challenging the racial system. So there's a moment in time where these terms took on this sort of meaningful distinction. And since that time, the terms have roughly held up. That distinction still holds up, although you do see moments in time where they get sort of blended together again in interesting ways. Cool. And then the other question I had was about the student sit-ins saying that they were not sort of like an effort of civil rights. Did they label the work that they were doing? Did they just consider themselves activists or... Yeah, so the language that they use, and I I have an entire chapter on the civil rights movement in my civil rights book, and the whole theme of the chapter is about how people who we now identify as leading actors within the civil rights movement were skeptical to antagonistic toward the term civil rights. All right, so the sit-in movement is featured there. I have a whole section on Malcolm X, who actually just attacks civil rights. He says civil rights is exactly what we shouldn't be doing. We should talk about human rights. So he had human rights versus civil rights. Mm-hmm. But then I also try to figure out, well, what are the language that they use? If not civil rights, what kind of terms did they attach to themselves? And the terms that seem to be generated more frequently and naturally out of more grassroots activism, terms like freedom, first-class citizenship was a very powerful term for these groups, equality, of course. So these terms were more meaningful for people who are fighting on the ground, or terms that had this sort of broader connotation, right? Whereas civil rights, for many of the activists, particularly the grassroots activists, civil rights was more about the project of changing laws. So it was more about the work of lawyers and more about the work of people who were you know, lobbying Congress. And there are certain moments in which the activists and the legal reformers would come together. But oftentimes, the activists wanted to sort of define for themselves what they were doing, and they searched for language to do this. So those are the kind of terms you look at. And one really fascinating part of this chapter in the the civil rights movement, if you actually look at the organizations that were created during the Black freedom struggle in the 1950s and 60s, pretty much no organization that was predominantly controlled by African-Americans labeled itself a civil rights group. There were a few groups that defined themselves as a civil rights organization or that used the term civil rights in their title for the group, but they were mostly groups that had strong white liberal influences in them, Hmm. right? So as a term of sort of grassroots inspiration and activism, civil rights was actually much less evident than other terms, justice, citizenship, freedom, those kind of terms. And with the importance of language, especially, you know, the pervasiveness of social media, the accessibility to Twitter and stuff like that. Why do you think that understanding the struggle over the term civil rights is critical to making the U.S. a more just and equal society? Yeah, so I think there's two ways to look at it. One way is that struggles over terminology give us useful windows into the broader struggle. So ultimately, we are talking about a term, a term that can be exchanged for something else, terms that are picked up and put down at different moments in time. So one way you can think about this is that understanding how Americans have fought over civil rights gives us a window in terms of how they fought over the underlying issues about equality and access to justice and things like that. But also, I do think the terms itself have some importance and some value because, you know, to describe the world as it is, to describe the world as you want it to be, you have to have language, right? You need to use Mm -hmm. words. 
Uh, and words are incredibly powerful to help explain to people what you're trying to do. And one of the themes I really highlight in the, in the civil rights book is that civil rights has been uniquely powerful in creating linkages and bridges between groups who are have uneven commitments to underlying causes of racial justice. So during the height of the Black freedom struggle in the 1960s, the term civil rights was oftentimes seen as a term that was more moderate, right? Then maybe some more radical terms. Certainly when you get to late 60s, you have uh, arguments for black power and things like that. And civil rights was very much juxtaposed as being a more moderate alternative. But one thing the term civil rights was able to do when reform was moving in a progressive direction, it could create connections between people who are maybe not on the front lines of the grassroots struggle, but they're interested in getting involved in some way and changing laws to make them better, right? And people who are out there struggling to make the world a better place, right? So these are yeah. a term that I like to think of as a bridging term between um, maybe more moderate interest groups and more radical ones. And it's one in which they could find some common ground. And at times in history, that common ground is really what makes major change. And certainly if you look to some of the major legal achievements of the 1960s, they were the product of the intersection of, I'd say, a moderate liberal impulse intersecting with a more radical grassroots activism. And they came together. And when they came together, what they often described that accomplishment as is a civil rights accomplishment, right? So the 1964 Civil Rights Act, arguably one of the most important legal achievements of the era, right, was labeled a civil rights act. And this term helped bring people together. So again, I think the words and the categories in which we think about the world and think about changing the world, they're important and they have some value. And when you have terms that can actually bring people together, that's worth highlighting and understanding how that works. Yeah, well, you know, you mentioned changing the world. So I'd love to talk about your new research project, which focuses on the history of the Supreme Court. And this is highly interesting to me because I have to be honest, the most I know about the Supreme Court is from ABC's How to Get Away with Murder, thanks to Viola Davis. So, you know, I, I know it's something that obviously influences my life and the country that we live in. But what motivated this research of the Supreme Court for you? Yeah, so the Supreme Court's fascinating to me because it's the institution that when most people think about the law and certainly when they think about the Constitution, it is the institution that most people connect with that, right? So it is the most publicly visible, most arguably important legal institution we have in our American constitutional system. At the same time, it's one of the most mysterious institutions we have. Right. So much of what they do happens behind closed doors. We have the nine justices of the court who, you know, they have their moments in the spotlight, certainly during confirmation hearings, but then they kind of go off and do their thing. So in part, it's the fact that it is uh, such an important and highly salient institution. At the same time, it's sort of the mystery behind it. It just makes it something fascinating to look at. So that's just why the Supreme Court has always been an object of fascination for lots of scholars. And I will say it is striking to me that it has become such an object of deep contention. And this seems mm -hmm. to only be growing over the last, I mean, I'm not sure how long you want to go back. And it's one of the projects <laughs> of the book is to go back a ways. Uh, but certainly over the last 10, 15, 20 years, it seems like just every year the Supreme Court gets more and more controversial. It gets pulled more and more into political debates, right? We've had some controversial confirmation hearings. And, you know, they go back a few decades, but pretty much now every single confirmation hearing is a huge public event. Even when the court is not really doing much, right? When it's not issuing decisions, when there's not a confirmation hearing, the court itself still seems to be in the spotlight in a way that just seems quite different to me than it has been in the past. 
So it's a fascination, a sort of lifelong fascination with the court, combined with the fact that it just seems to be playing a different role in our political debates today. It also seems to be playing a different role in our culture, right? In some ways, you know, people are fascinated by the court. People are fascinated by individuals on the court. Of course, we had this recent celebrity turn of Ruth Bader Ginsburg with the notorious RBG and all this, and Justice Scalia had his own thing going. So the idea of the people on the court turning into celebrities, and in some ways they seem to be embracing it in certain ways, all of this seems to be somewhat new and also seems to be particularly problematic, right? So you have a new development, a development that, you know, in some ways I think is concerning, as a historian, is right for me to look back and figure out, well, how do we get here, right? What has it looked like in the past? We've had past moments of deep contention over the court, but those have been somewhat different. And to tell the story about what the court has been in relationship with the rest of American society. And that's really the focus of this new book project. I'm not looking at particular court opinions. I'm not looking at particular justices. I'm trying to think about how the Supreme Court has a relationship with everything outside the court, with American society, with politicians, with the public at large, with members of Congress. It has a relationship and how that relationship has evolved over the past hundred or so years. Great. I want to, if if I may, play a little game with you. It's sort of like a hot seat rapid fire round. I'm going to ask some questions and I want to see how succinctly you can answer them for my own education. <laughs> that sound like fun? All right. I'll do my best. <laughs> yeah. All right. So as quickly as you can, what is the Supreme Court? The Supreme Court is the highest court of the American constitutional system. And why does it exist? It exists because the U.S. Constitution says it must exist. It is the only court that the U.S. Constitution says has to be there. This is a strange one, but it's the way my brain works, right? So, like, I know about Supreme Pizzas. So, like, what are the pepperoni courts? What are the lesser courts beneath the Supreme Court? (laughs) Wow. Okay. The pepperoni courts. So, (laughs) the Constitution says there needs to be a Supreme Court, and then it gives Congress the authority to create what it calls the inferior courts, the courts that come below the Supreme Court. So we have lots of federal district courts all around the country, and then we have courts between the district courts, which are trial courts, and the Supreme Court, and those are the courts of appeal that also are located throughout the country. So at the moment, we have in the federal judiciary three different levels, district courts, appeals courts, and the Supreme Court on top. Great. And who is on the Supreme Court? So we have nine justices at the moment. That is something that's a bit contentious. It has been nine justices since the 1860s, but there's some people arguing now that we should change the number of justices, we should add more justices, but that's something that's currently being debated. Nine justices on the U.S. Supreme Court, they are Amy Coney Barrett, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, Elena Kagan, John Roberts, Samuel Alito, and I feel bad if I missed one. Did you catch me? I I didn't. I I I missed one. I missed one. Clarence Thomas. Okay. I think I, I was like, it. oh gosh, I don't know half of them. That's <laughs> awful. Don't you feel bad for me? This is bad. I am a citizen, but it's okay. That's why we're making these uh, podcasts. So here we go. In your opinion, or based off your research, so that you can abscond yourself from the answer, does the Supreme Court function well? That's a really good question. So I think on balance, the Supreme Court functions pretty well. 
uh, pretty well when you look at it in terms of historically what it has done. It is generally doing the same basic work it has done historically, which is resolving disputes that come up through the lower courts. It functions pretty well in terms of it's very important for the Supreme Court to have the faith of the people in it. And although that has been subject to much challenge, generally speaking, if you do polls about faith in our governmental institutions, the Supreme Court generally comes out on top of other federal government institutions. So relatively speaking, at a time where there's a lot of concerns about government dysfunction, the Supreme Court functions. It functions pretty well. They produce their opinions. You know, they don't do a ton of opinions every year, and they actually decide a lot fewer cases than they did generations ago. But no, I think it functions pretty well, whether it is deciding cases correctly, whether it's taking the cases it should be taking, those are all points of dispute in which I think you need to look more closely. But I think if you just step back and say the general matter is a court doing its job, not everyone would agree with this, but I would say generally speaking, relative to other institutions, relative to what it has done historically, it's functioning well. Okay. Now I have to ask you, have you seen How to Get Away with Murder? I have not. Actually, I, that's something I've... I've I'm sure, I, I mean, I assume it's because you have been doing more important things. So, <laughs> so I won't judge you for that. But uh, what is the process for getting a case heard by the Supreme Court? Because I'm sure it was not as simple as it was in the TV show. So it's very difficult. So the Supreme Court gets something along the line of uh, perhaps 8,000 petitions to review. And they only decide 80 to 100 cases a term. So many more people want cases reviewed by the Supreme Court than are actually ever going to get before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court basically has their pick of the cases that they think they need to take. And it, one of the hardest things about the Supreme Court is actually getting the Supreme Court to hear a case. Most of the cases that get adjudicated through either a state or federal judicial process end somewhere below the U.S. Supreme Court. But a small number the court will take. If the lower courts are divided on an issue, they're more likely to take a case. If it's a case of major public importance that they feel like they need to weigh in on, they're more likely to take it. If it's a case that four or more justices feel like they really want to you know, have a statement about what the law is and should be, they're more likely to take it. But yeah, there's a lot more cases that people want it to hear than it actually will be able to hear in a given, given year. Well, that wasn't hard. You did it. That was that was the end of my rapid fire questioning. So thank you. I think I was a little long winded on the last couple. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. I mean, that was important. How could you really, you know, make those short answers? So just a few more questions because I know that we um, want to be conscious of your time. You know, by the time this podcast is released, we will be into the fall term of the Supreme Court. So what are important upcoming Supreme Court decisions? Uh, the next term is going to be a big one. Um, I mean, this term, we do have some significant cases, but next term looks to be, at the moment, one of the biggest terms in recent memory. So the court has seen cases in two areas in which everyone's going to be watching. One is abortion. Uh, mm -hmm. The court has accepted for review a Mississippi law that prohibits any abortions after 16 weeks of pregnancy, which comes well before viability, which has been the dividing line for when courts can ban abortions for a long time. So the court in that case is going to review Roe versus Wade and the cases that came after Roe versus Wade, <clears throat> which all turned on the state's ability to only prohibit abortions after viability. So that's going to be a big one. Abortion is back at the court in a big way. And if you just count heads on the court, it seems to be a majority of justices on the court who have expressed some level of either skepticism or antagonism toward 
Roe versus Wade and the constitutional right to abortion. So everyone's going to be looking at that to see what the court's going to do there. The other big area are guns, gun regulation. So the Supreme Court back in 2008 issued a major ruling in which it said that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to bear arms. It's the first time the court said that that right actually runs to individuals and not just to militias. But from that point, that was back in 2008, after that point, the court largely got out of the issue of gun rights and allowed the lower courts to deal with the sort of aftermath of that decision. But they've accepted for review next term a major gun rights case dealing with very strict regulations that New York has on the ability to have concealed carry, to carry a firearm outside the home. And so that's going to be a big question about whether the court wants to expand gun rights. And again, just counting heads, looking at the recent appointments to the court, we do seem to have a majority, perhaps a strong majority of justices who have expressed more support for a robust Second Amendment, a robust right to bear arms than past courts have. So those are going to be really hot button contentious issues that are already on the docket for next year that everyone's going to be looking at. Wow. Stay tuned. <laughs> yeah, I think I'll have to. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, so obviously some Supreme Court decisions feel particularly salient and meaningful. And others, you know, like like the ones you mentioned, those, you know, sort of make me feel a certain way that I probably can't describe on a work thing. But other decisions feel like opaque or out of touch with our sort of day-to-day lives and experiences. But why should we care about each of these decisions? Why do these decisions matter to us, even if we're not fully aware of them? Yeah, so it's it's a really good point because only a small fraction of Supreme Court opinions actually really get a lot of attention. And they do get a lot of attention. The two lines of cases I just talked about get huge amounts of attention, and rightly so, right? These are hugely contentious issues or issues in which we as a nation are very much divided on, and the court weighs in quite meaningfully on these hot button issues. But there are lots of cases, right? I said before the court decides uh, maybe 80 cases a term, maybe a handful are the ones that are going to really be the sort of headlines of newspapers. But there's a lot of other cases, many of which uh, are rather obscure legal issues, but oftentimes have a lot of consequences. And I will say the area of law in which the Supreme Court, as well as many other courts, weigh into that doesn't get as much attention as it should, but are have a major impact on people's lives are probably questions about access to courts, access to justice. Right? And I know you've had a prior podcast on that topic. But these are issues which are sometimes very legalistic, sometimes rather technical and obscure in terms of when people can sue and what kind of burdens they have to show in order to have successful lawsuits. But these are very meaningful on people's lives, but they don't translate as well in terms of, you know, pushing issues that people really are engaged with and want to talk about. So they sometimes fly under the radar, right, more than uh, maybe they should, where we are you know, debating about abortion and guns. Some of these cases about actually getting your foot into the courthouse probably going to have as much or more of an impact on your life as what New York gun regulations are. So this one's a personal one. How does your research make you feel? hopeful, worried? How should we as a country feel? That's a big one. Yeah. Wow. That's a tough one. It depends on the day. (laughs) How about today? Uh, (laughs) um, So I find in history both, I mean, so a lot of my work is basically looking back to history. And then with that history, it sheds some light on the present. Oftentimes, it makes me feel more comforted, in part because a lot of the things that we feel are just uniquely divisive and pulling us apart today, past generations of Americans have also thought about, maybe different issues, right? But we've been deeply divided about issues in the past. 
And one thing that history does is it helps put things into perspective, right? And putting things into perspective is useful because you understand that we've had these episodes before, that even if they feel awful at the time, people have thought of constructive ways to work through them, and that's useful. At the same time, oftentimes you look to history, and then you put the present alongside your historical research, and you're frustrated or depressed, Yeah. right? I mean, just... Certainly today, when you look at just the extreme polarization of our politics and how, I mean, for example, something as straightforward as um, more robust voting rights policy, right? Which I do think past generations have been able to come together and say, this is just something that's going to make our democratic system work better. The fact that that itself has become so deeply polarized, I find the lessons of history in that one to be deeply dispiriting, right? Because if there's, yeah. you know, if we can't get together on just the, the right to have the democratic process work in a way in which people's voices are heard, then we're in a pretty rough spot, right? And I think history sort of tells us that there's something that's gone astray here. So yeah, it's, you know, for me, in terms of sort of how my research impacts my understanding of today, it's really, it's day to day, it's what I'm researching that day. History is really rich and complex, and it's inspiring in certain ways and depressing in other ways. And, uh, you know, that's sort of how it goes. And one of my goals in my historical research is to capture all that, right? Capture that complexity, right? History doesn't yeah. give us easy lessons. You know, we can go back there and make stories that seem to be really straightforward and easy, but a lot of it is is complicated. And one of the things I really take inspiration from is finding how people in past have confronted things that they thought were insoluble that they were able to figure out, right? And then I guess that would be a more hopeful lesson that you can take that past generations have solved problems that they saw no path forward on. And hopefully that we can do better than we're doing right now. If people want to take action or need to learn more about their civil rights or the Supreme Court, where would you recommend they look? Your books? <laughs> That's where I would recommend. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of really good literature out there. I mean, it's such fantastic literature on the black freedom struggle. That's always useful and inspiring to find, you know, a period in time in which so much was going so wrong and that people were able to rise up and really redefine what the country is supposed to be. And, you know, they failed in certain ways, right? We failed in certain ways. The black freedom struggle was a partial victory. But, you know, the success stories there are worth bringing out and trying to understand um, what happened. In terms of the Supreme Court, so my first deep investigation in the Supreme Court was a doctoral dissertation on Brown versus Board of Education. And I still find the story of how the NAACP and the U.S. Supreme Court came together in the Brown decision, desegregating the nation's schools in 1954. I find that inspiring. You know, I've been studying it for 20 years now, and I still find it fascinating and inspiring to understand what happened in that story. So there's some really good literature on Brown versus Board of Education and some other Supreme Court decisions. The ones that are best are ones that don't lionize the Supreme Court, or at least not too much. The Supreme Court played a role, but it was not alone. And if we understand the Supreme Court as part of American society, as part of American politics, then we understand the Supreme Court is limited, but the Supreme Court is also very important. So the best works in the Supreme Court, you know, don't hold it up on a pedestal. Don't say that the Supreme Court did it all. Don't say that the Supreme Court, you know, started the civil rights movement because it didn't. But then understand how these legal institutions can play a really important role and how actors outside these institutions can uh, inform the court, right? So one of the most important things about Brown versus Board of Education are how these people outside the court persuaded justices or, you know, convinced them to look at things differently. That's an important lesson to take, right? That we all as Americans, as members of American political system, have a role in how our courts act. And the court should understand that they have a place 
and there's a dialogue, there's a relationship between the court and American society that both sides have responsibility to pay attention to. Great. What a beautiful way to end. I have to say, I'm feeling surprisingly patriotic now after <laughs> chatting with you. So, And I always like to give our guests an opportunity to ask me a question or two, if you like. Cool. Anything you want to know? So I got, I got a random a question related to what we're talking about. Sure, yeah. Which is Supreme Court Justice do you know anything about? Uh, Sotomayor is someone I have heard of. I don't know much about her other than that she was at the inauguration. I know that she is a woman of color. And then I can never remember the one, this is, this is awful, but you're asking me and I'm being honest for our uh, listeners. <laughs> Amy Coney Berry is what I always call her, but I know that's not her name. I just keep yeah. going with the whys. Amy Bar Coney, Barrett. Amy Barrett, Barrett. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I don't really know what they stand for, uh, mm -hmm. um, other than their political affiliation. And then obviously, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is someone who, at least in the celebrity world, the pop culture world, because that is something I'm much more familiar with, sort of know of her and more the idea, right? More the empowerment sort of factor, but I don't actually know any of the cases she sat on or what she, um, moved forward. So did you see the Saturday Night Live skits with Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Was it Kate McKinnon that yeah, was playing yeah, yeah. I saw some of them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, I'm kind of interested in that because the Supreme Court's place in popular culture, that is a development that's kind of new. And I'm just kind of curious about what sort of resonates out there. Clearly, Ginsburg's got what she's got a documentary. She's got a, a like a movie. movie. Yeah. yeah. She gets makes on Saturday Night Live a lot. Matt Damon did have a pretty funny impersonation of Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing. If you ever want to do some, <laughs> that was on, that was on Saturday night live too, right? That was Saturday night live. Yeah. Um, yeah. sort of the, the pop culture taking on the court. Which I guess is sort of to answer your question more succinctly, you know, most of the stuff I know is from when it is being sort of skewered or mocked that way. Right. Because I guess it's easier to laugh at, you know, imminent danger than, than it is to just sort of <laughs> shut down. I don't know. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. Ginsburg was uh, clearly Kate McKinnon and Saturday Night Live were lionizing Ginsburg in a way. So they're they're making laughs about it, but they're also sort of elevating her, which is yes, which is yes. interesting. Yeah, yeah. And you know, the ABF just launched a Ruth Bader Ginsburg endowment fund. So no, well, she, she's got some history with us, so we like yeah. like to take advantage of that. Thank you to Chris Schmidt for speaking with me about his work examining the Supreme Court and civil rights. Next up, I'll speak with Paul Smith, ABF Life Fellow, Professor from Practice at Georgetown Law, and Vice President for Litigation and Strategy at the Campaign Legal Center. Prior to 2017, Professor Smith practiced at Jenner and Block for 23 years, where he chaired the appellate and U.S. Supreme Court practice. He has presented oral arguments before the Supreme Court on 21 different occasions, and in 2003, he won the landmark gay rights case, Lawrence versus Texas, which I'll ask him about today. Paul Smith, thank you so much for being with us today. So you have an impressive work history that includes oral arguments in 21 Supreme Court cases. And I'd love for you to give me, since this is the first time we are meeting virtually or otherwise, a description of your work and how you got to where you are. Well, I went to law school way back in 1979, and I was lucky enough to clerk for a Supreme Court justice in 
1980-81, it was Justice Powell. Uh, and so there I was looking for a job in 1981, and the best option that seemed to, to come along was to go to work for a little boutique law firm in D.C., founded by a bunch of other former Supreme Court clerks. And that job led to eventually a job at a bigger firm called Jenner & Block. But I found myself in private practice in the 80s and 90s during the time when the idea of being a Supreme Court specialist in private practice really first came about. Mm -hmm. was, over that time, this uh, group of people who were trying to specialize in that area formed in three or four or five law firms. It's now grown to most of the D.C. offices want to have a Supreme Court specialist in them. But uh, this was all very new. And so it was territory that had not yet been claimed. And I, over time, became part of that group. Maybe not the absolute leader of it. The people used to be Solicitor General, maybe, were always the kings of that club. But it was a group of 30 or 40 people that really ended up arguing most of the Supreme Court cases by the time of the new century. That's an interesting phenomenon. You know, from an outsider's perspective, or someone like me who really doesn't know a lot about the Supreme Court, it seems that presenting arguments before the Supreme Court would be a more powerful and prominent platform. But are there other fundamental differences from arguing in the Supreme Court versus other courts? It's a very challenging place to argue a case. Uh, <laughs> and that, that has to do with a variety of things, one of which is the justices are very aggressive. Uh, and it is the way that they argue with each other. They use you as a kind of punching bag to try to uh, convince each other who's right and who's wrong about the case. And so particularly since the arrival of Justice uh, Scalia in 1986, the court has, is just very, very hot, as they say, a hot bench. And so if you're not uber prepared, you're just not going to do very well. There are a couple of other things that make it a uniquely challenging place. One is that the precedent that you cited in your brief, unlike in lower courts, is not binding on them. They can always change the law whenever they want to. And so you have to talk to them in a different way about why a particular rule makes sense, not just why it's supported by some prior decision of the court. And in doing that, you have to realize what they're trying to do is not decide your case. They're trying to set a rule that can operate going forward with lower courts administering it so they don't have to deal with this same issue again anytime soon. In a weird way, they're kind of lawmaking and they want to know, is the rule you're proposing one that will make sense in a variety of contexts, that has limits, that's not going to cause problems if we articulate it the way you ask us to? And all of those things are the things that people who have experience in the Supreme Court get to understand. And it becomes a place in which you can deal with those challenges. But it is a tough place, particularly for a rookie lawyer who's used to lower courts to come in. That's actually probably the most clear definition that I've ever received on that. So thank you. <laughs> it's like, oh, that makes sense to me now. Yeah. You know, your work before the Supreme Court touched upon civil rights and civil liberties issues. ABF research professor Chris Schmidt recently released a book called Civil Rights in America, a History, which in part tells the story of you know, how Americans have fought over the term civil rights, what it means and how it's defined from the Civil War until today. Now, in your opinion, how have we or do we define civil rights? That's my first question. And then I have another one. I tend to think of civil rights and civil liberties as being categories that correspond to the two core guarantees of the 14th Amendment in the Constitution. One is a guarantee of equality. One is a guarantee of liberty. And civil rights is associated with equality. It became a really prominent term, although I have to read Chris's book, it certainly became a prominent term in the 50s and 60s as associated with the movement for African-American equality. 
and then was used later on to refer to equality for women, uh, even more recently for LGBTQ people, well, all focusing on, on equality, absence of discrimination. Civil liberties tends to be substantive liberty protections like uh, the First Amendment says you can't be censored in your speech mm-hmm. in many instances. So that's the way I see the two of them. Uh, it's a little complicated, though, because they can they can interact and overlap. If you look at all the key decisions of gay rights decisions in the last quarter century, written by uh, Justice Kennedy, I guess it's a little less than a quarter century, since 2003, he wrote them all as liberty cases, not as equality cases, using the due process clause and not the equal protection clause, because he, he liked to write them that way. They ended up establishing equality, but there are ways in which you can pick and choose as a justice between those two principles. Interesting. And that sort of answers my second question, which was, you know, based off the definitions that you sort of feel we're operating in, how has it evolved during your career? But it seems that, you know, if they are crisscrossing at times, that yes. we're still sort of trying to figure it out. Well, especially in Justice Kennedy's opinions in these gay rights cases, because he, he didn't tend to write nice, clean, law clerk style opinions. They tended to be more poetry than prose, so to speak. And sometimes that makes it hard to sort them out doctrinally, although they obviously accomplished a great deal in terms of establishing equality for the LGBTQ community. And speaking of the LGBTQ community, you know, one of your most famous Supreme Court victories came in 2003, the case of Lawrence versus Texas. So I'd love for you to revisit the legacy of that case and use it as a lens to walk through your work before the Supreme Court. What was the process for bringing you on board and getting this case heard before the Supreme Court is probably a good place to start? Right. So there I was at Jenner and Block, the co-chair of our appellate and Supreme Court practice. And this issue of the constitutionality of the sodomy laws was something that I had been tangentially involved in doing amicus briefs in various state Supreme Courts. But this uh, Lawrence v. Texas case kind of bubbled up from Texas. It was Part of the ongoing effort of the gay rights movement to get rid of sodomy laws, which had been upheld back in the 80s in a case called Bowers versus Hardwick, and they found the perfect case, the Lawrence case, where two men had been arrested in a private home for having sex with each other, or at least that's what they were accused of. So this case came up through the lower courts, state courts of Texas. The defendants, the two men who had been arrested, lost in the state courts of Texas. And the question then was, should we take this important issue of sodomy laws back to the Supreme Court and see if we can get that Bowers case overruled? And the people who were litigating the case, primarily the Lambda Legal Organization, which is one of the really important uh, gay rights organizations, thought they would come to us and talk to us about Supreme Court strategy. Was this a good time? Was this the right case? And so uh, we got to consult on the case and we decided that they should go forward and we got to work on the case. And so that's kind of how I got involved. It it turned out to be, I think, by far the most incredible experience of my legal career. I can tell you more about that, but that's how it started. Yeah. And so how long would you prepare for a Supreme Court case such as that, you know, developing, I guess, like an overall strategy, the oral argument and all the things that go into it? Well, there's a whole set schedule for a Supreme Court case. You know, first you file your petition to ask the court to take it, so-called petition for certiorari. And when they take it, then you have a kind of set period of a couple months to write a brief, which is a 40, 50 page document explaining why you should win. And then it gets set for oral argument a few months later. And the process of getting ready to do this case is, first of all, you, you really need to focus on the writing because that's what is the most important part of the way that arguments are presented in the court. But of course, you also have to prepare for oral 
argument. And, you know, based on what I described before about what a hot bench this is and how smart they are and aggressive, the only thing you can do to really prepare for that, in addition to just knowing the case back and forth, is do moot courts. And so when it was decided that I would be the person to argue the Lawrence case, I had multiple moot courts, probably at least four. We got as many smart people together as we could, and they tried to be as nasty and aggressive as they could be just to get you ready. You really have to understand, it's hard to realize from our vantage point now. In 2003, the LGBTQ community really hadn't didn't have any rights at all. If they could put you in jail just for being gay yeah. or sleeping with your partner, that meant you really didn't have any rights, at least under the Constitution. And so getting rid of that possibility, getting that rule changed was absolutely critical to any progress forward. And this felt like the uh, equivalent of Brown versus Board of Education for gay and lesbian people at the time. And, and so we weren't leaving any stones unturned, let's just say. Yeah. We understood <laughs> the importance of the case and, and what we were doing. That was actually one of my questions. It was, you yeah. know, if you had a sense of sort of the historic nature or the weight of this particular case and how it was going to shape, you know, intimate relationships, privacy, and family in the U.S. We absolutely, completely did, because it was the culmination of a whole 16-year-long effort to get the Supreme Court to finally recognize that gay people really need some rights in this country after Bowers back in the 80s. Thank you, Paul. Uh, well, thank you. <laughs> uh, um, I was... Uh, luckiest person in the world to be able to be involved with this. I didn't make the case or develop it, but I was in the right place at the right time. And the sense of historic importance was there. We felt like we should save all of our notes. And it actually turned out after the fact that the Smithsonian called me up and, and they have now in their collection, the binder with all the scribbled notes and stuff that I took up to the podium in the Supreme Court, as well as the necktie I wore that day in the collection of the American History Museum. So, Oh, wow. <laughs> isn't that remarkable? That's um, awesome. <laughs> Yeah, it was on display at the museum in Washington last year, or I guess right before the pandemic, you could go in and see it. And it was, uh, it was amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that really is. So, you know, the state of LGBTQ plus rights has changed significantly since then. And I'm wondering if you can speak about some of those advancements within the broader context of civil rights. Right. So even as we were getting rid of the sodomy laws in 2003, the movement was beginning to focus more and more and had been for a few years already on the issue of marriage equality. And what happens in Lawrence in 2003 was that it laid kind of a foundation for progress forward on marriage equality because the court said at the time that same-sex relationships are equally valuable and important as everybody else's. And the government doesn't get to have an opinion, a moral judgment about your choice of a life partner or even a sex partner. Those are judgments that the individual gets to make in our society. And as Scalia pointed out in his dissent in Lawrence, once you make those two moves, it's really hard to imagine what justification there might be for denying full protections of marriage to same-sex couples who formed a family together, maybe raising children. And so it proved over the next dozen years, it was difficult for uh, the states trying to defend their refusal to marry same-sex couples to come up with a reason once they were denied the opportunity to say, well, we just find your relationships more morally inferior. They couldn't say that anymore because of Lawrence. And it was, a, it was a difficult, long process. But by 2015, the court was finally ready to go ahead and take the logical next step of saying that, in fact, same-sex couples do have the right to the full recognition and protections of marriage. 
And one kind of led to the other as a matter of logic. There was a lot of work done in between, of course, a lot of it done in the form of seeking state court decisions in favor of marriage equality. Perhaps the most important one was right in 2003, when the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court in the Goodrich case said that under Massachusetts law, gay couples have a right to marry. And so by 2004, in fact, people could see on their television people getting married and realize that the sky didn't fall, increased the sum total of human happiness in the the state of Massachusetts. And so that was kind of a one-two punch way back in 2003. And, you know, we had a really tough time as the American people started getting used to this idea. But by 2015, popular support for marriage equality was very high. The court felt very comfortable that they were doing something that most of the American people were in support of. And indeed, when Obergefell came down, nobody was particularly surprised. And there was, wasn't a hell of a lot of backlash, frankly. I mean, there were a couple of court clerks here and there who refused to issue marriage licenses for a few weeks. But overall, the American people were like, okay, we saw this coming and we are, um, we're, going, we're happy to live with this, this change. And it really was a remarkable movement from a time when people thought you should be put in jail back in 2003 to a time when full marriage rights were, were accorded. Yeah, and that's not a long time at all. I mean, of course, there was a long period of time for decades before that trying to get to that point. People leave that out when they say, boy, you guys really moved fast. You won all your rights in 12 years. But uh, it really wasn't quite that way. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that is a great segue into my question of, do you see the court as a critical place to move the cultural and societal needle forward to be more in line with popular sentiment, which it sounds like you do, given what you've just talked about? Well, when the court is acting at its best, that is what it does. Uh, You know, we give the Supreme Court in this country a vast amount of power to make some of the most important and difficult decisions that, frankly, our legislators don't do a very good job uh, at handling. And so what we've seen with things like the school integration case, Brown and marriage equality case and, and others, is the court saying, look, most of the American people believe that this civil rights advance is the right thing to do. There's kind of a legislative blockade, but we see this core principle in the Constitution of equality justifying our moving forward with just ending the debate about this particular issue. When the court has done that and done it at the right time in the right way, it has made the country a better place, a place more true to its core constitutional principles. And so I do think that the court needs to be an institution that moves the cultural and societal needle forward and also responds to the views of the American people who are calling for greater civil rights or greater equality or or liberty. It is a kind of a yin-yang. The decisions of the court are very instructive to the American people, but the American people are also instructive to the court at times. And so I think that it's kind of a real politic view of how the court operates. It's not just a purely legal institution. It is a political institution as well. But that's the reality of how the system has worked and how things have moved forward over time. Of course, I'm not expecting a ton of great progressive movement forward from the current court, but we can talk about that. <laughs> Let's talk about it, actually. That's, that's my next question. Speaking of how the court operates, do you think it is functioning well and could it function better? Well, does it function well? I mean, I I would say a couple of different things. I think the court as an institution functions well in that it has really smart people who do their job very carefully and learn to live with each other, these nine people working very intensively together over a period of time. It has an interesting kind of transparency because on every case they come out and they 
they sort of air their thoughts in front of everybody. And so as an institution, there's a reason why it has maintained greater popularity and respect from the American people than the other branches of the federal government. But what's going to be very interesting to watch as a court watcher going forward, and it's going to start very soon, is that we now have a court due to sort of accidents of history of who got to appoint most of the recent justices, a court that is really out of step with the majority of the American people ideologically. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are the most conservative court that we've seen, at least since the Depression in the 1930s. And the American people are not moving in that direction. So this coming year, we may very well see uh, Roe v. Wade overruled, a broad expansion of the right to carry guns out into society, even concealed weapons. I think affirmative action is on the chopping block rather soon. A lot of things that are very, very aggressive are going to come from this court because they happen quite sincerely. The justices are committed to a view that that's the right reading of the Constitution. It's just going to be one that creates a lot of tension between what the court is doing and saying and where most of the people are. And that that is a phenomenon we haven't really seen to this extent in a long, long time. Sure, there are decisions of the court that are controversial. Some people really hated Roe v. Wade. Other people really hated Bush versus Gore. Some people, I suppose, even hated Obergefell, the marriage equality case. But this is going to be the court really trying to turn the clock back on some of the things that people care most about in their constitutional rights. It'll be a time of, um, I think, tension and tumult when the court does this. But I, I do think that is where they're going. Should we? Should I be scared? Should should we, as the American well, people, be worried about these things? You know, the, the thing about our structure of government is there are lots of checks and balances. And so if the court tries to take us in a very, very conservative direction that lacks popular support, there are things that can be done. Congress can step in. Right now, for example, there's an effort to get Congress to fix a lot of the problems with the Voting Rights Act decision the court issued last June, the Arizona case. The political institutions can push back. Eventually, if it gets too severe, Congress has the power to increase the number of justices and give the president the power to add more. There there are lots of things that over time can occur to moderate the court in one way or the other. And I I don't know that fear is the right way to look at this, uh, but it's certainly going to be true that we're going to end up relying on political branches rather than the Constitution to protect, for example, abortion rights. Mm -hmm. It's going to depend on what your state legislature thinks, not what the court says, for the first time since way back in 1973. And that'll be a shock to a lot of people. Uh, Generations of people have grown up thinking this is about as clear and absolute right as as there can be, but it's pretty much likely to go away. You know, for every question you answered for me, I had five more. We don't have the time for that, unfortunately. (laughs) I wish we did, but I'm going to ask one more question and then I'll invite our uh, ABF summer intern, Max, to ask a question. But my last question is for people who, you know, want to learn more about their civil rights or the Supreme Court, where do you recommend they look, research, people to talk to? Well, there's lots of wonderful books about the Supreme Court and how it operates. I mean, I could recommend at least a dozen of them by Joan Biskupic. She did a lovely biography of Chief Justice Roberts. Almost any book about Thurgood Marshall will give you an interesting perspective, both on how civil rights operated when he was the lawyer promoting civil rights and then how he operated as the first African-American justice. Jeffrey Tubin, The Nine, is a wonderful book about how the court works. Just, I think if you go to any bookstore, 
out there, you'll find a whole wealth of literature about this. And it's something that I think people should stay educated about. It's, a, it's such an important institution, and it gives you some perspective to read a little history of the court, not just read what's going on in the headlines on a given day. Yeah, that is true. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Max, if you were able to unmute yourself. I'd like to bring Max Fritsch, ABF summer intern, to ask a question. And hopefully they're not better than mine because I am slightly competitive. <laughs> well, yeah, I think you've actually answered a lot of the questions I had written out originally. Oh, great. <laughs> um, but there was one thing that you mentioned, Paul, that I thought was really interesting, which was specifically when you were talking about the Lawrence case, like knowing it was the right time to bring that before the court. And I think my question is just, you know, how do you know when it's the right time and Perhaps have you ever encountered cases where you just didn't feel it was the right time? And, you know, maybe what did you do then? It can be difficult. But, you know, let, let me just say a couple of things about that. Good question, Max. First of all, the reason everybody was so skittish about this is because the movement had been burned so badly in Bowers versus Hardwick. They had gone to the court asking to get rid of the sodomy laws in the mid-80s. And it was just a little too soon. And they ended up losing five to four, making things so much worse for people than they were if they hadn't gone to the court at all because then you had a Supreme Court case upholding the laws. And so, you know, you do have to worry that if you go to the court and lose, you'll make the world worse. And the court does not turn on a dime. It took 16 years to get that overruled. And that was very quick by the historical practice of the court. But how do you decide um, whether it's the right time? You have to look at what the court has been saying on related issues. And it's often helpful as well to see what is the cultural context in which you're operating? And if you think about how things had changed from 1986 to 2003 for gay people in this country, there were new justices who had already said some much more positive things about gay rights. And the entire culture, including the legal culture of this country, had changed incredibly dramatically uh, to the point where by 2003, we went out to get people to write amicus briefs on our side in Lawrence. Every big law firm in America wanted to be on our side and to step in and play an important role in this historic victory. That was not true in 1986, I can assure you. And so all we really had to do in 2003 was convince the center justices, O'Connor and Kennedy, that this is where the American mainstream was, the American establishment. And indeed, that was true. And so those are the kinds of things you look at, not just personnel of the court, not just their recent cases, but the overall cultural context in which they're operating. Thank you so much. That's very, very helpful. It's a real pleasure. Yes, Paul, thank you so much. In all honesty, we're done. So now this is just me talking, but I really, you know, as a member of the LGBTQ plus community, did not expect to have such a visceral reaction to learning about these things. So well, that was nice. That was nice that you had a little reaction. Thank you. Thank you, yeah. truly. What an opportunity in life to have one thing you did, and I get way more credit for it than I deserve because I just happen to be the one standing at the podium, but to do something that important is really a lovely opportunity. Thank you so much to our guests, Christopher Schmidt and Paul Smith. And thank you for joining us for episode six of Whose Law Is It Anyway? An American Bar Foundation podcast. This podcast was produced by Chrisana Tennyson and Devin Johnson with associate producers Ann Pikus and Natalie Shoup. And for better or worse, I'm still your host, Matthew Martinez-Hannon. We'll see you or you'll hear us on the next episode where we'll be talking about the international rule of law and human rights. 
Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And while you're at it, share our work with your friends or your family or your friends who are like family. Also, if you've enjoyed what you've heard so far, please rate us and or leave a review. In the meantime, if you'd like to learn more about the ABF, visit us online at AmericanBarFoundation.org or feel free to follow us on social media on Twitter at ABF Research and on Facebook and Instagram at American Bar Foundation. Until next time, be well. Thank you.